Um, I always pray for some, uh, some intriguing or fun way to introduce uh, uh, the message or each week's message in Scripture uh, conversation that we're going to have each and every week. Um, so today's intro, it might be lighthearted for some of you, uh, but it might trigger or stress out some of you, so I'm sorry in advance. But uh, the good news is uh, the, the message, I think, is going to really be about finding relief and, and finding help. So maybe you'll be in a better position to get some help if you go through some distress first. So <laughs> I don't know if that's how it works, but th- th- that's one way to look at it. So God bless you all for putting up with me, especially today. Uh, but, but in all seriousness, has anybody, uh, has anybody ever been diagnosed, and don't, don't raise your hand unless you just want to, but has anybody ever been diagnosed or maybe diagnosed yourself with OCD? I think we all, most, some of us are familiar with that. Um, we use that term and we throw that term a lot, uh, throw that around a lot uh, in, in our world, uh, especially in today's world where we're so connected and, and we got a lot going on at one time. Um, but, and I don't mean this in disrespect to any of you because I'm one of you and you can imagine how today of all days we would be very difficult on some OCD tendencies that uh, most of you are very familiar that I have. So, uh, of course, the day I talk about it is the day everything goes haywire. Um, but that tells us that God has a sense of humor and we're glad that uh, he's not just static and, and just, uh, uh, at least he's paying attention, right? Uh, but uh, for me personally, um, I, I don't really see OCD as a burden and, until today. It's definitely been a burden. But before today, it's usually not really a burden for me. It's just really a part of who I am. You know, I don't know if uh, I'd be me without it. Uh, maybe I'd be a better me, but uh, I'm too far into this life to pull the plugs out of my brain at this point. Uh, so I'm kind of stuck with it, what I, who I am. Uh, but of course, OCD is an abbreviation for obsessive, underline on the obsessive part, <laughs> compulsive disorder. Uh, now, most of us uh, sort of use it as an easy way to, die, uh, to, to, to describe our obsessions, aptly so. Uh, but there's tons of research that have been done to examine the nature of being in what is called an OCD cycle. Uh, now, if you look this up on the internet, you can see a diagram that's kind of like a big, it, obviously it's a cycle, it's a loop, um, that we have some kind of obsession and then we have anxiety over that obsession or getting that obsession took care of or getting more of that, uh, you know, figured out. And then the anxiety leads to some compulsive behavior. And then we go through some compulsive behavior and then we find temporary relief. But then after a while, the relief is gone and we're obsessed again and we have to go back through the cycle. Um, and some of the experts, agree and, and, and created a diagram that perfectly encapsulates the cycle and some call it a vicious cycle but maybe it's a delightful cycle for you um, I think it can go either way depending on what you're being OCD about um, depends on the issue at hand and, and speaking of hands you know ever since COVID has become a household name uh, about a year ago um, OCD has become something that we're a little more potent for us um, with the constant questioning uh, that's always lingering is have I used hand sanitizer lately? And maybe that's something that you didn't realize you were OCD until you started thinking about, well, hey, did I touch something or have I put something near my mouth? And, you know, what, am I going to catch something? So a little, all of us, maybe not you, but most of us have been a little bit OCD over that the last year. But, you know, when I got into ministry, this is kind of funny. It's kind of sad also. But when I got into ministry about a decade ago, um, I used to be pretty slack about washing my hands before I would eat. Don't get too worried. Um, 
Y'all can laugh later. But I used to be pretty slack about washing my hands before I would eat after any given service or, and, 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 and things that maybe my hands would be, you know, n- not so clean. But I, I didn't intentionally not wash them. It was just something I just didn't really have a habit of doing. And, you know, I'd been at church and or if I was shopping or something and, and if I went to eat afterwards, I just didn't think about, hey, have I washed my hands? But a few years into ministry, uh, and I don't know why it took me this long, but it dawned on me on a Sunday afternoon while I was eating lunch that uh, I shook somebody's hand about 30 minutes before, and they literally, while they're shaking my hand, tell me about how they're just getting over the stomach flu. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm eating, I haven't washed my hands, you know? And, you know, God bless them. I know they were being, I'm sure they were better. I hope they were better. I don't remember what happened after that meal. But anyway, you know, it just dawned on me, wow, I, I, didn't, I didn't wash my hands. So ever since then, I have been just super, super OCD about if I shake a bunch of hands, which, you know, we should do this. I, if I shake a bunch of hands, I'm going to make sure I wash my hands before I eat. Now, that, you think, well, you should have been doing that all along. But, you know, I was young and, and foolish, and I had to learn from my sins. Uh, but, uh, and, and it was like, it was like this transfiguration moment where I heard a voice from heaven say, thou should wash your hands, you know, before you eat. So I was already initiated into this cycle before COVID, but ever since then, uh, my hands are like still wool. I mean, they're just, you know, it's just my skin's coming off because I use so much hand sanitizer. Uh, and, and I don't really worry over it. It's just a reflex, right? You know, they ha- people said, hey, you should, you should clean your hands. And I thought, well, you know, I should do that and, and save a life or whatever. Uh, but, but some might say that's from OCD. Some might just say it's, it's something, it's completely normal. But uh, maybe you deal with OCD and its effects in all sorts of ways. Uh, and I sympathize with you. Um, if it's challenging and if it's something you wish you could erase. But I, I, I want to share with you how OCD has been kind of a part of who I am uh, and how I've learned to live with it, and I really couldn't imagine living without it. Um, I have a spinoff condition, kind of like, you know, the Jeffersons is a spinoff of, of, of uh, Archie Bunker and all that, that, that show. I have a spinoff condition of OCD, um, and it's called OLD, which it spells old, but that's not what it's about. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize it spelled old until a little bit ago, but uh, OLD, which is short for Obsessive Learning Disorder. Now, if you know me, you, you already know, you, you, you could have diagnosed me with this a long time ago. Um, and, and here's how OLD works. Uh, basically, it follows the same cycle as OCD, but you discover something new uh, and, and something's interesting, and you're just fascinated with all the different you know, parts of it and all the different you know, chapters and all the different you know, elements and, and different tiers of it. Uh, and, but, but then you start wondering, I don't know everything I can know about it. And you start thinking, you know what, there's more to know, and I've got to know all that there is to know because I can't just know a little bit. I've got to know all of it. So then you consume all the information you can, you process that information, and then you begin to realize there's more gaps in your knowledge, and then you get back through that cycle. It's rinse and repeat. And I have been in that cycle since I was a child. Um, now, it's pretty much how my brain works every day. When I was a kid, if I fell in love with something, whether it was, you know, it, all the stuff that I might still like today, uh, when I fell in love with something, I had to get every magazine, every book, watch every documentary. I had to consume every bit of information about that thing because I didn't want to not know something about something that I loved. And, and, and as I grew up, you know, things like podcasts and YouTube became a thing, and then online wikis were just a treasure trove of information. All these things became these mainstays in my life. And if you know me, I'm always listening, and I'm not just listening to music. I'm listening to, you know, people talk about things. I'm listening to movies. You know, I'm not watching them. I'm just listening to them. I just, that's just how my brain works. I've got to always be consuming information and learning something. Uh, and I became obsessed at a very young age, obsessed with learning and consuming more 
and more information. And if there's a subject I'm slightly interested in, uh, it doesn't take long for me to become deeply immersed and engaged in it. Now, I like to think that this is just a gift that God gave me to help out with ministry, uh, that uh, the uncontrolled byproduct of it is that it bled over into every other aspect of my life. Maybe it's just who I am, and, and maybe God has used it and redeemed it for His glory. I don't know. But I do try to at least channel it into my studies, and it's not really something I have to try to do. It's just kind of something I have to try to contain because I do it too much. Uh, by no means do I know everything there is to know. I'm not try, up here trying to brag about wanting to learn everything. But I, I do have a hard time accepting there's something out there that I might not know. Um, now, I can comprehend, I don't comprehend everything as well as other people do maybe, but I am obsessed with trying to figure it out. Somebody once told me that I was like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, that much learning will drive me mad. Maybe that happened a long time ago, I don't know. But that's just how my brain works. Um, and if you feel sorry for my brain, then, then <laughs> say a few prayers for me. I don't know if there's any hope at this point. Um, it, it's just actually, it's something that I've, I've really worked hard to try to harness and, and use as a pastor and a teacher. Uh, because rather than trying to always push us onto something new, this is why, and maybe you figured this out through the years, but this is, maybe it will help you understand more. This is why I intentionally try to cover texts and topics thoroughly. It's why we don't just blaze through something and go on to something next. It's rather than going wide and getting just something off the surface level, and rather than going just deep in a single thing, I like to go deep and wide. If you use an excavation analogy, I don't just like to you know, get the top layer off of the ground. I don't just like to dig a big hole. I like to kind of go diagonally and get everything that we can along the way. And this drives my preaching, it drives my teaching. There's probably no better example uh, than our current series that we're in uh, about God, about the names of God. Um, it's pretty much what inspired this series called God Who, because the way my brain works, if my heart falls for something, my brain needs to know all about that something. So I've been fascinated for a long time. I can't believe it just now became something we we're talking about as a church. But I've been fascinated for a long time about the different names for God in the Bible because each name reflects a different side and a different trait of the same God. And I just you know, can't imagine not knowing one of his names and not knowing something about God if there's something that, that can be a blessing to us and something that can help us in our walk. And, and of course, I'm a preacher. Of course, I say this, but that's why the Bible is not just a three by five. I mean, it could just be John three sixteen, and that's enough to get us to heaven. But the Bible is full of so much information, so much revelation, and so much inspiration. And the reason for which is because God is so infinitely amazing and infinitely bigger than we could ever imagine. And there's so much of him for us to understand if we'll just follow him. Now, I hope this series inspires you to be a little bit obsessed with learning about God and about all that there is to know about him. Uh, and, and actually, I think this is kind of cool. This is really the, where this, whole, this conversation today is what led us to the last couple of weeks. Actually, I just did them in a different order. Uh, the reason we have the first five books of the Bible, and this, might, this, is, this is really cool. I think, I think you'll, you'll, you'll like this. The reason we have the first five books of the Bible is because one man became obsessed with learning all there was to know about God. And if not for this one man who received an invitation from God and said yes to God and 
if not for him falling head over heels in love with his God, we would not have the first five books of the Bible. And you almost could go from there. We would not have the Bible. Now, of course, God would have had other ways to get it to us, of course. But he chose this man, and y'all know this man is named Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, but Moses' story begins as he tells it in Exodus chapter 2. And we spent a couple of weeks studying the life of Abraham, but the reason we know about Abraham is because Moses wrote it down. It's because Moses responded to an invitation that God gave him. Uh, he completely sold out and wholeheartedly pursued a relationship with God. It cost him everything, but in the exchange, he gained far more. Most of us know Moses' story. He was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their family relocated to Egypt during a famine. They were guests of honor, but then they became slaves without honor over time. Egypt became concerned over population control. They introduced a, 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 an infanticide that they would kill all the baby boys born in a generation. Moses was spared, and as fate would have it, he was adopted into the royal family. You would almost see this as a fairy tale like story. Moses is going to become the prince of Egypt. Maybe he'll become Pharaoh. Maybe he can free his people by becoming the king of the land. But that's not how it goes. He was taught all the ways of the Egyptians. He was trained to be the future Pharaoh of the land. He was educated and immersed in the ideology and philosophy of the Egyptians, but it left him empty. He wanted more, and he knew that there had to be more out there. He knew his identity as a Hebrew. He felt a connection to his ancestors, and something about their long-forgotten God kept calling his name. The story goes that Moses' first act of discontentment was to defend one of his Hebrew brothers. He slew an Egyptian to show them he was one of them, but they don't recognize him as one of them. And they don't take him as being their savior, so they reject his leadership. And for fear of consequences, he flees to the Sinai Desert. Moses found himself in a strange land. He was no longer an Egyptian somebody. He was now a Hebrew nobody. He came to Midian afraid, emotionally exhausted. But thankfully, he came to a well. And in this next chapter of Moses' life, we see his true life begin. So if you've got a Bible, that introduces us to the, to the story today. I want to read from Exodus 2, verses 11 through 15, and then we'll read down at verse 23. Uh, again, this is right after Moses um, has grown up in Pharaoh's uh, palace, educated as the next Pharaoh, but then he decides this is not the life for me. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to the brethren and looked at their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brother, brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out uh, on the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one of, who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. That's not insignificant. Down at verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel were grown because of the bondage and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. 
I, I can't help but think it's so ironic, and this, sh- this shows you how God works, and it's never how we expect him to. Moses, the next in line to become Pharaoh, flees the land. Then his father, or his stepfather, dies, so Moses could have became the king of Egypt, could have freed the people that way, but that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't God's will. The scripture says that God saw that his people were hurting. He saw that they were suffering. And as we've learned recently, he is the God who hears. He is the God who sees. He is the God who will provide. And his provision began with Moses. As Moses was emptied by the world, he began to drink from God's well, much like Hagar did in the desert. Moses began drinking from this well. And as God began, and as Moses began drawing from the well, God began drawing Moses to himself. And let me just say this our response to this world when we lose, when we find ourselves lacking what we maybe used to have plenty of, When we lose material and temporary things, we immediately think, I've got to get that stuff back. That I need that stuff to make me happy. But here's the thing. Moses, having lost everything, he began to realize that there was something better for him that was immaterial that God had in store for him. And here's what we need to know. If we need the things that we lose in this world, God will provide them, but we need to be more sensitive to our greater need, our only need to be filled with the power and knowledge of God. He'll bless you with provisions. Don't worry about that. But may our passion be for whatever we can draw from God's well above everything else. Moses was plenty blessed during this period of his life. It was time of, a time of preparation for an age to come that he never could have anticipated. We don't know how long uh, he was, in, how, we don't know the great details of his faith during this time. Clearly he was at peace in this new land, having stood for what was right. I, I assume he thought, well, at least I did the right thing. But I'm sure he wondered what might have been. Was there a better way to advocate for my people? Maybe I would have become the next Pharaoh. Maybe I went about this the wrong way. Maybe I should have waited or maybe I should have turned my head to that Hebrew oppression. Forty years go by and at the end of that 40 years, Moses is now almost 80. On the backside of the desert, he wonders if his life is all but over. But we know from this story, he sits down by the well And one drink from God's well would ultimately lead him on a journey up God's mountain. Look at Exodus 3. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He came to the flock on the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, or Sinai, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire amidst the burning bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will not turn aside and see, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Backside of the desert, no good sand. But God says it's holy. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look upon God. It's from here that Moses learned the stories we've recently heard about. Abraham's discovery of God and how the Hebrews made their way to Egypt. Moses himself is introduced to God by the name that Abraham knew him by. Yahweh. Look at verse 7. 
The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to do a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and all the other ites, verse 9. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am, or Yahweh, has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their God has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So I can't overstate this. God has been building toward this moment since for 400 years. What we observed in the revelation of Hagar and Abraham was pointing to this moment when Moses would ascend the mountain of God. Because Moses' revelation would not just be a private and personal as theirs was. He was about to lead a whole nation into knowing God. God would work a miracle through Moses. And for Israel before Egypt, with not just a nation in mind, but the whole world in mind. Over in chapter 6, if you'll turn, God tells Moses what his plan is. Hey, I'm going to send you. You're going to go say, hey, let my people go. And I want you to notice verse number 7 of chapter 6. Listen to this statement that God makes to Moses. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out, out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So underline that phrase or highlight that phrase. You shall know that I am. And if you flip over another page, God gives Moses another round of instructions. This regarding his posture before Pharaoh, and listen to what he tells Pharaoh, or what he tells Moses about his uh, confrontation with Pharaoh in verse number 5 of chapter 7. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Do you notice a trend there? You shall know that I am is the one true God. The Egyptians will know that I am is the one true God. And if you read the Old Testament, and if you read the whole Bible for that matter, you will hear this phrase over and over and over again, that you might know who the one true God is. That is God's plan. That is His operation and everything. He supervises, he sanctions, he sends over and upon this world the common factor, his single motive, his single agenda. Isaiah 45, the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God. All of this was to make known that God could be known. Do you hear that? It was all to make known that God could be known. 
He doesn't just want you to know about him. He wants you to know him deeply, intimately, and personally. Yahweh is the God you can know. Dan DeHaan was a youth minister back in the 80s. He wrote a book right before he died tragically and suddenly in a plane crash. But the title of that book, you should look it up, is called The God You Can Know. His book details how there is a God who is bigger and better than our wildest imaginations, who is inviting us to come and know Him. It's not just about having facts and charts memorized. It's not just chapter and verses. It's not just dates and comparing theories of the end times. It's not just about having a great sermon to preach. It's not just about memorizing a few verses. No amount of sermon points and categorizing theology is going to be enough. It is about the revelation and inspiration that comes from knowing God in a personal way. It comes through taking His Word and what it tells us about Jesus and sitting under His teaching and sitting under the Spirit of God and allowing Him to know us and coming to know Him. It's about falling on your face before a holy, glorious, and loving God that has been revealed in front of us. It's about receiving His revelation and inspiration as if it's life-changing, because it is. Sometimes we seem to only read the Bible when we have problems, or we only read when we need to respond to somebody else with something witty. But we rarely read the Bible just for our own hearts to be changed. Ephesians 1 says that we might would know to the depth and the extent of what God wants to show us, that we might be filled with the riches of His glorious inheritance and might know the immeasurable greatness of His great might. I don't know about you, but maybe you've got a skill set, a hobby, a sports team, a certain historical period that you know everything there is to know about it. If there is a God of mercy and grace, holy and almighty, that's inviting you to know Him and be filled with Him, is there anything more valuable than that pursuit? Is there anything? God wants to be known by you. You can know as much about Him as you have the appetite and desire to know. There's never going to be a moment in your pursuit where you hit a limit. You can go as high up the mountain as you want to go. Beginning in Exodus 3, Moses begins the most incredible journey, one that we are invited to take ourselves. And you know what jumps off the page at me? Moses was not at the foot of the mountain expecting a revelation. He was just doing his job, the most mundane of all jobs of his day. He was a shepherd of sheep on the backside of the desert. And that's when God began calling him up the mountain. See, somebody here today thinks, well, there's no use in me getting up out of bed tomorrow because work's going to be the same. There's no anticipation. There's no excitement. There's no expectation that God may have something in store for you. There's no expectation that God is calling you to follow Him and ascend His mountain. But we don't know that. The devil has all, all of us backed in a corner without any hope or any dream. We say things like that. We doubt, and it suggests that we don't really know God like we can know God. We're so negative, so hopeless, so lackluster in our expectations. We don't know what God might be leading us to. And it doesn't have to be this sort of transfiguration moment. It can still be full of power and purpose if you just simply respond to the breadcrumbs that God begins to lay in front of you. Because every day He does. 
where we behold His glory and His goodness. God is worth the pursuit. He will never disappoint you. And truth be told, a lot of us are disappointed day after day with this life, aren't we? Not because God is not present or active, but because we aren't persistent and we aren't watchful and we aren't listening to Him. Every day we are like Moses at the foot of this mountain and we just think we're in the middle of a desert with nothing important going on around us. And in that scene, God said, Moses, take your shoes off because you think this ground is worthless, but I've called it holy. You think this bush has no purpose, but the glory of God is rising from this ordinary bush. God would repeat this invitation to Moses for the rest of his life. Come up to the mountain and know me and belong to me. And God is repeating that same invitation to every one of you today. For the rest of his life, we find Moses, yes, he stumbles. Yes, he sins. Yes, he has temper tantrums. Yes, he doubts. But more than that, he is always going up the mountain. He dies on top of the mountain. Face to face with the God you can know. God reveals himself to Moses as I am, the God we can know, the God who can be known. This whole conversation is all about the details of what it means to know I am. But listen closely, part of knowing I am is knowing that I am not. Part of knowing that knowing I am is knowing that we are not enough for what our souls desire and for what our appetites are looking for. This world is not enough. All of the carnal and fleshly things that may seem temporarily satisfying, they are not enough for what your soul wants the most. We know that God is everything we need, well aware that we are not enough in and of ourselves, and that is a confession we must make. Part of the Hebrew journey in Exodus is getting a clear image of I am through the plagues and the miracles of the Passover and Red Sea. But as important in their journey as those wonders is the test that they face. Because the tests remind them that they should never and they can never take their eyes off God. They can never stop pursuing God. They can never get comfortable in this world because they will fall behind if they rest too easy in this broken world. As soon as they cross the Red Sea, the Scripture tells us that they are tested by God. You say, why would, why would God test them? He tested them to show them the contrast between this world and His kingdom, between following Him and following the world. And it wasn't just Egypt and Pharaoh that would be a trap for them. It's the world that we live in and to this day. Over in Exodus 15, you can look over there as we close right after they cross the Red Sea, right after they sing the song of victory, they come to a place called Mara, where God tests them. And in this test, there is a contrast between God and the world, and it's symbolized through a drink of water. Listen to this. Verse, chapter 15, verse 22 so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness, and they found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah, which means bitter. The people complained against Moses and saying, What shall we drink? 
He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the water was made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases for which I have brought on the Egyptians on you. And listen to this. For I am the God who heals you. I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam where they were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. I, I want you to hear this promise that God makes to the, Egyptian, to the Jews here in this last passage. God makes a promise to the Hebrews that is so heartwarming, one that continues to drive home his message to his people today. When we think about Elroy, the God who sees, Yahweh Yaira, the God who provides, we hear these emphatic statements about a God who is personal and present. This is no difference with emphasis on the contrast between trusting in the world and trusting in God, drinking from the world's wells and drinking from God's well. God adds even more emphasis to his name, Yahweh, with the name Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals you. See, Exodus is really a story about him being healed from this world, being healed from the slavery this world puts us in, being healed from the bondage this world brings us under, from the conditions we suffer because of those burdens, the brokenness and the bitterness that comes from the sin that's in this world. You know, we get so angry at one another, but you know what the problem is? It's not the person across from us, it's the sin inside all of us. This series has featured a few conversations about wells and the water we're drinking because they're such a powerful analogy for the sources of our strength. Once again, we get a bold reminder that we need to, what we need to do is quit drinking the water of this world, the sources of constant bitterness and brokenness that dominate our lives. We need to counter this world's attempts to numb our pain which is only enslaving us further by trusting in Yahweh Rapha, the God we can know despite our brokenness, despite our bitterness, who can restore and replenish our souls, who can heal our hearts. You know, I think there's three areas that we desperately need healing in. When it comes to our self-worth, when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to our daily purpose, See, our flesh tells you, your flesh tells you that you can't know God. You've done too much wrong. You've gone too far. You're too deluded by the world. Your relationships will tell you there's no room for God, that there's a bridge that's been burnt. The two of you are too complicated to ever find help or healing or ever change. Your life might suggest to you that there's no place for God or a pathway to God, that you've shut too many doors or too many doors have shut on you. You may feel as if purpose was lost a long time ago. Yahweh Rapha wants to tell you today that yes, in and of yourself, you can't find healing. And in this world, you won't find healing. You'll never feel good enough. You'll never be able to work things out. You'll never find the ambition to press on. But with the help of God, we can lean on I am. See, I can lean on I am even though I am not good enough. I am not smart enough. I am not able. I am too weak. But I am can bring the healing that I need. The greatest proof of this promise from God is that Yahweh became a man. Yahweh saves. We call him Jesus. 
Jesus stood up at a religious festival one day, broken people outside that weren't allowed in, hypocrites inside that weren't getting any help. Jesus stood up and said, Anyone that is thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. No one inside the temple wanted this help, but a woman being brought in, having been caught in the act of adultery, was desperate for it. She had been brought to the temple to be condemned, but Jesus had come there so she might be saved. So Jesus exits the temple that day, and that next morning this woman is drug up the stairs, drug up to the entrance of the temple to be stoned. Of course, you know the story. Jesus intervenes, and he says, whoever has uh, without sin cast the first stone. Nobody does. They all leave. Jesus and the woman are there alone. Jesus stood up and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I. I don't condemn you. And I also free you from the sin that has enslaved you. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. One of the greatest healings Jesus ever performed. He took this broken and bitter, bitter temple ground and brought salvation to sinners like it was originally meant to. This is the God who invites you to follow him today. Yahweh Rapha, the God you can know. The barriers are gone. The hurdles are lowered. The price is paid. The tree cast in the waters of Mara is a symbol of the cross of Calvary. Jesus suffered the brokenness and bitterness of our sin on his cross so that we might know the sweet and savory healing of his salvation. That's what it means to know God. John 17, 3 says that, they may, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Not, not a single moment in time, but a relationship that is forever bringing healing to our hearts, that protects us from being broken, restores us when and however we may be broken. I gotta ask you today, do you know Yahweh Rapha today? Do you know the God who can heal and the God who can save, the God who can deliver, the God who can break you free from bondage, the God who can give you what this world cannot give you? If you don't know and you aren't pursuing a true relationship with Him today, why wouldn't you want to? There's nothing in the way, only our own pride that tells us there's no use, and we rebuke that today. Of course, I am not able. Of course, I am not worthy. Of course, I am too weak. Of course, I am too broken. But I know I am. He's the God who can heal anybody. Even our broken, unworthy, weak, and sinful hearts. The first step for most of us is just admitting that we need the help. Admitting that we are not able. But today, you can come to know the one who is able. The great I am. The God who heals you. I hope that you know him in a personal way. I hope that you know that the tree that was put into that water, the cross of Jesus, can bring salvation to you today. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, you might need a restoration. You might need to be renewed. You might need a rededication. And that's what we all need, isn't it? That fresh start 
that this world has maybe tried to hold us back, we can have a fresh start today. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ again and again and again and find that constant renewal and help that this world can't give you. The worship team's gonna come up and sing a song for us. It's called, I Lift My Hand. It's all about surrendering. It's all about admitting that I am not able. But today, we have come to know the God who is able, the great and the one and only, I am. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this reminder of your true name. Thank you for being the God who can heal. Thank you for being the God who invites every one of us to ascend the mountain and that we can follow you and pursue you as much as there is an appetite and desire in us to know you. Lord, I pray you would give us all that appetite. You would give us all that desire. You would give us all that understanding that there's nothing in this world that's going to quench the thirst of our soul. There's no well in this world, no water in this world that's going to give us what only Jesus can give us. Lord, I pray you might would bring somebody today to a place of surrender, a place of accepting that they are not able but a place of believing and knowing that you are the great I am is. God, make, make yourself known today. Would you heal hearts today? As we sing this song, as we lift up our hands, would you reach down and heal our hearts? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.